feels nice and full in here. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians. Thank you. I don't know if Marcos is in here yet, but yes, he is. He's sitting down in the worship team. Uh, appreciate you serving today and uh, you guys volunteering your time, the sound guys in the back, the ushers, those who are preparing a picnic for us, I think as we open up this topic of our mission statement today, uh, you'll see that these are people that are an example to us, and so thank you, thank you for serving. A little bit different approach today, we're, we're in the book of John, but we're going to be talking today about our new mission statement that we've been working on for a number of years, and uh, the pastoral team, since it was my idea, asked me to uh, walk you through it, and so before we have our picnic, I'm going to take you through our mission statement. And I'm hoping to show you some evidences of where we get this from in the Bible. And I, I decided to use Ephesians because I think most of it's there. And I uh, didn't want you having to thumb around the whole Bible all morning. So hopefully uh, Ephesians will serve us to get the point across. So my brother was in town this weekend, kind of a last-minute surprise trip. And uh, yesterday was a block of love for any of you who are from the area. It's an event that's put on in the village. And they had this thing called a Taste of Kosciuszko in the Heritage Room, which is right near my house. And so we went over there. We hadn't eaten. We had a volleyball tournament in the morning. And so we went over to grab something to eat. And uh, as we're kind of moseying around the room, grazing at the tables, uh, cupcakes and smoked meats, all the good things that make life awesome. Uh, I saw my chiropractor over in the corner, and he had this machine called an in-body tester. And so he got me curious, and so I went over there, and he, he had me get on this machine. And so had me take my shoes and my socks off, clean the bottom of my feet, clean my hands. And it kind of looked like one of those doctor scales that you stand on that weigh you, but they have the post that comes up out of the ground. And so I, I stood on this thing. There were a couple of really shiny spots on the floor that I had to put my heels and toes on. And then there were these two arms that came out, and they had these thumb prints that had these shiny spots on them too. And he had me stand there and hold these arms out, and, I, and my arms couldn't touch, and I couldn't talk, and I just had to be silent for 40 seconds. And in 40 seconds, this thing sent a microcurrent through my body. I didn't feel it, but there was some type of electrocurrent that went through my body. And, and electricity travels, at, apparently travels, so I'm told, at different speeds based on mass and uh, makeup of what it's going through. And so it goes through your body, and it's able to tell you a lot of things about your body. So within 40 seconds, I got this big, long test. So it, it wasn't bad news altogether. Um, so it tells me I'm 187.6 pounds. I had a lot in my pockets. <laughs> and I was carrying a kid. It tells me my intracellular water and my extracellular water. Um, those two combined is 111 pounds. So I'm mostly water weight, if you didn't know that. My dry lean mass, if you ever wanted to make me beef jerky, um, I'm 41 pounds when you dehydrate me. 
and my body fat mass is 35 pounds. So, uh, and it walks through, it, it tells you if your right arm isn't symmetrical with your left arm. It told me how much my right arm weighs and how much my left arm weighs, how much my right leg and left leg weigh, and if my body's in symmetry. And it also told me I was dehydrated at the time. Even though I'm 111 pounds of water, I needed, I needed more. And it also told me my visceral fat level. That's not the fat that's outside of your muscle. That's the ones that's around your organs. That's the stuff that will kill you. And uh, you want to be a below a 10. So I'm a 6, so not too bad. So I was just intrigued. I'm kind of blown away about this thing. Um, really has nothing to do with the message. Just, just thought I'd share it with you. Uh, actually, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> You know, these, these tests are helpful because they, they tell you things about your body that you wouldn't otherwise know. And mission statements can be the same way. Mission statements can monitor the health of the church. They're not magic. There's nothing magical about having a mission statement. It doesn't matter where you put it. It doesn't matter how much you talk about it. It's not going to change anything. But it's a, they serve as a metric to measure the health of our body as a church. And so the, the previous statement that we had was not a bad statement. It's a very biblical statement. I actually love it. It's treasuring Christ and proclaiming his word. But it's not concrete. There's, there's some elements that don't help us measure how healthy we are. And so our new mission statement is a, is a means by which to measure our health as a church. And so if you've got a bulletin today, our new mission statement is on the front. It says that CCC, we exist to glorify God by growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple makers. And we believe this is a better metric. Both statements are biblical, but we believe this is a better metric to measure the health of our church. So if our church were to get up on this in-body test, we believe this statement would help us gauge how healthy we are. And so I want to just walk through this statement. So I want to just take it phrase by phrase and help you understand why this is important. And so I choose the book of Ephesians this morning because I think it, it captures everything that we're talking about this morning in our mission statement. Now, Paul did not write the book of Ephesians for our mission statement, so it's not apples for apples, but I, I believe because it's biblical, we find all the pieces there. And so rather than doing a whole survey of the Bible, we'll just stay in the book of Ephesians. So, Paul, the apostle, wrote this book to churches in Ephesus. And it begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the section coming 
down into his greeting because I, I want you to pick up on, on a bit of a refrain of Paul. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now listen to this. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now we could continue going. But for the sake of time, at the end of verse 12, again... He talks about our hope in Christ being for the purpose of bringing praise to praise to the glory of his name. And again, in verse 14 at the end, it says when he's talking about the Holy Spirit that's given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance until we possess it to the praise of his glory. So three times in this greeting, Paul says that the purpose of redemption is to the praise and the glory of of God for His grace. And so we are a church who is primarily about God's glory. In fact, we could, we could have a mission statement that says at CCC, we exist to glorify God, period. And that would be enough. But again, we're looking for a metric. We're, we're wanting something to measure. And, and the glory of God is so expansive and so majestic you can't wrap your mind around it, much less make it a metric to measure the health of the church. And so as you look through the Bible, and as you move through Ephesians, you find a number of ways that God is glorified. And the first part of that, that we have in our statement, is by growing together in Christ. See, it would, it would be enough at least for us, for God to save us for this inheritance he talks about in verse 14. But as you, as you move through the book of Ephesians, what you find is this salvation that came to us has a greater purpose. He talks about this grace in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift. It's a gift from God, not as the result of work that anyone should boast. However, listen to this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we're not saved by working, but when God saves us as a gift, he has work for us to do. And so the way we glorify God is, is by being a part of this good work God has 
plan for us. And, and the first part of that is growing together in Christ. And all of these that I'll talk about require a level of intentionality. And this is why we want to be intentional about making it a part of our mission statement. Because this doesn't just happen by accident. This is work God has set out for us, and it's work that He calls us to do. But nevertheless, it's work, and it requires intentionality. And I would argue that God's glory increases with our intentionality. So the more intentional we are about this work, the more God is glorified. And that's what we're about. And so we want to magnify His glory. We want to increase His glory. So we need to be intentional. And so first we're going to be intentional about growing together in Christ. If you back up in chapter 2 there, verses 1 through 10, he's talking about who we used to be and what God's done in us. We used to be dead in our trespasses and sin. We were following the course of the world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. But he goes on to talk about how uh, if you... Look at verses 11 through the end of chapter 2, which I won't read, but, but the picture Paul paints there is God's doing a new work. He's taking people who were not originally part of God's people, the Jewish people, and he's taking these Gentiles and he's making this new man. And this new man, we'll find in just a few minutes in chapter 4, is, is the body that Christ is the head. And, and so with this, with this body, this new man that God has created in Christ, and he's, he's bringing us together and building us together to be one new man. And this is the amazing wisdom of God he's putting on display to principalities and powers and to the world. And he wants to bring this to full maturity. But we do this together. He says in 2, 1 through 10, we used to be sons of disobedience, but now we're sons and daughters of obedience. We used to be sons of darkness. Now we're in the kingdom of light. And then he ends this section in verse 21 of chapter 2. Um, well, if you, if you back up a little bit, he talks about this foundation. You think of a building plan. There's a foundation that's poured. That foundation is on the apostles and the prophets. That's those who wrote the word of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the most significant part of the foundation, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, in Jesus, you are all, each individual blocks of that building, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we get these three pictures within Ephesians. That we're children. 
We're, we're adopted in. We're new children in God's family. Used to be sons of disobedience. Now we're children of God. And we're this body. In, in chapter 1, verse 23, if you back up to 22, He put all things under His feet, that's Jesus' feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all and in all. So we're, we're children. There's a picture of this body. And now in verse 21 of chapter 2, we're this building in this structure that God, we're, we're each individual building blocks that God's putting together to make a temple for Him to dwell. And all of these pictures require progress. As children, we grow into adults. As a body, we mature into a healthy man. As a temple, we are starting with a foundation and we build with blocks until it's complete. And Paul has in his mind here that this, this work is not complete. There's a process. And this is part of the good work we have to do. And we realize as we begin reading through Ephesians that Christian maturity is a community project. It's not something we do as individuals. There's a part we play as individuals, but there's a collective element to the body of Christ. And we get a picture of what this growth looks like primarily in chapter 4. He begins this chapter by talking about how God gives gifts to the church. Not only is salvation a gift, but by His Spirit, He gives each individual in the church gifts. Spiritual gifts. And that's what he means when he talks about this body that comes together. And we see this um, in 4.11 to 16. I'll just read this section. It says, and he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles. These are some of the gifts he gave to the church. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now listen why they're there, what they're there for. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So there's a good work to be done. Everybody's involved. And for the building up of the body of Christ. Until when? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we're no longer children. Tossed to and fro by waves. Carried by every doctrine. By human cunning or craftiness. But rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we get this picture here that the, the, the church, every individual within the church is, is a part of a living organism that God considers the body of Christ. And everybody has a part to play. And until everybody's playing a part, the body's not healthy. In, in full maturity, in full manhood that, that, that grows into the head, which is Christ, and bears the image of Christ, until we arrive at that state, there's, there's a good work to be done. And we do this together. This is a collective effort. 
So we don't primarily grow in Christ independently. Though we do have some personal responsibility for growth, but we're called to grow in Christ together. Which takes us to the next part of our mission statement, that we grow in Christ together as a caring community. It's one of the ways, probably the primary way, we grow together. And this requires also a level of intentionality. This is part of this good work God has for us to do. And we see this in in chapter 4 that we just read. Every Christian in the church has a role to play. And so this picture is, you know, not everybody's a hand. And not everybody's a foot. And not everybody's a leg. But in order for the body of Christ to move forward in its mission, every part has to be playing its role. And so think about it. If, If you were an eye, And you saw something that needed to be done. But your feet were paralyzed. There's nothing you can do. Except sit frustrated that the church is doing nothing about the problem that you see. Or if you're a foot. But you have no eyes. You, you walk around aimless and blind, bumping into different places in life with no real vision. But every part has a role to play. We've got a missionary couple in Papua New Guinea. They were recently evac'd out to Australia. Chris and Evie Jones. And Chris had stepped on a rusted pipe in the tribe. He's in a far, remote, unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. It took him 12 hours to evac him out. He cut his Achilles tendon. And they emergency vacced him to Australia, and they had to do surgery on his Achilles tendon, and he has infection in his ankle. You can pray for them. They, they need prayer. And they cannot get this infection to go away, which obviously has bad news attached if it gets worse. But what his body needs right now, they've got, they've got a tendon fixed, but white blood cells have to come to aid. And, 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 and skin and flesh and muscle have to grow over to close that tendon so air can't get to it and cause infection. And if his body does not work properly, it will create further damage. And the same is true with the church. There are people at times who are hurting and in need, and other parts of the body need to come like white blood cells and bring aid and alleviate pain and and promote healing. This is all how we grow together in Christ. We, we care for one another as a community. And we want to be balanced. One of the things my uh, chiropractor told me yesterday, he had a bunch of people coming in. Fortunately, I had a pretty balanced body. Don't have a lot to it. So, I mean, especially since I had a bunch of stuff in my pockets and was carrying a kid for that 187 pounds. Um, but he said a lot of people came in and they had just out of balance symmetry. They had these huge upper bodies and these little bird legs. 
Ever seen Gru off Despicable Me? You know, this big hefty guy and these little peg legs. And that's not healthy. And there are some of you in this room, and you, you work night and day to serve in the church. And praise God for you. But you're limited by those who, who aren't flexing their muscles. And we want a, a church that has symmetry. We want balance in our church. We want everyone doing their part. Eyes seeing, legs moving, hands reaching out. Voices singing. As Paul tells us, this, this is a sign of maturity. This is a sign of what a healthy church is. And that's what we want to be about. We want to be a caring community. Because we grow together, there are ways that our individual work has influence on other people. And, and Paul moves into that um, in 5.15 through 6.9. He begins by saying, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. This is 5.16. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. So God has a plan for us. He's got work for us to do, so we don't want to be distracted. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, Paul's saying here, don't be selfish, which is in here being drunk. Don't be selfish. Be filled with the Spirit so you can serve other people. So you can sing to one another. So you can encourage one another. Calls us to submit to one another. So realize in your life that there are other people in your life that, that want to speak into your life and you need to listen to it. Because our maturity is caught up in our community. And we need each other. And then he moves to marriage. So we have this individual role to play. We don't want to be selfish. We want to be freed up to serve other people. But then it moves out into those relationships. Those most primary relationships in our lives. So as we grow together in Christ. In a caring community. Relationships are affected, and so marriages are the first one he puts on the list. Wives, submit to your husbands. Ask the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He moves down from there to 6.1 to talk about children. Obey your parents. But then he goes on in verse 4 and says, fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. But instruct them in the Lord. And so marriage and family become a place where we care for one another in community. Where we love one another the way Christ loved us. And, and, and what God's saying is I've, I've got a plan for your life. I've got a design. I made marriage. I made you with the ability to have kids. I, I know how it should work. 
And I've seen you before I met you and brought my son to your awareness and and saved your soul. I've, I've seen your perspective and it's not good. And and I'm inviting you into a way to be a new man. And to live in new ways. And as you do, it's going to have an effect on your community. It's going to have an effect on your church. When you love your wives the way Jesus loved his church, that'll make a difference in your marriage. When you love your kids the way your heavenly father loves you, that'll make a difference. When a dad comes in and loves his kid in a gentle way, not provoking him to anger, that that makes a difference. When a kid sees an authority figure in his life that God's placed there for his good, for her good, that will have an effect, positive effect. He moves to employment. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, he talks about servants and masters. You might say boss and employee in our culture. And he talks about how as, as workers, as employees, that, that we're not to work for our earthly masters, but with a sincere heart as we would to Christ. So work as if Christ were your boss. That's what he's saying. And if you're a boss, he tells them in verse 9 to do the same to them and to to not threaten and to know who truly is the master and and to conduct your business in an according, uh, uh, conduct your business accordingly. And and so you begin to see this ripple effect, how, how the gospel comes into our lives and it changes us as individuals. But it moves into our most immediate relationships in marriage and family. And then it moves into our workplace. He tells the thief in chapter 4, verse 28, that the one who used to steal, go get a job. And then have some money that you can help someone else in need. Quit taking from people. Start giving to people. I'm a generous God. I want you to be generous. We saw how we're to encourage one another in in words, through songs, but also in 429 he talks about the same thing. And again, we could do a broad sweep of the Bible and see this picture painted all over the New Testament, but we don't need to go any further than Ephesians to, to see it here. As it moves out, this this moves us to the last part of our mission statement. It's not just about caring for each other in the church. God wants His reshaping of us as humans to move into our communities. He, He wants our communities to see our marriages and our parenting and our work ethic and our compassion and our love and our generosity. All those things that God puts in us as He models it for us in Christ. He wants us to take that outside of our walls. And it becomes a part of his mission. So in Paul's mind, there's a, there's a cycle here. So Paul came in. He, we, we'll see this in a minute in chapter 3. But Paul came in. He got a calling to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. People who had never heard. 
who Jews didn't have anything to do with. And Paul got this special calling to go into their world and make a difference. And these are the people he's writing to. And he's saying, hey, don't be so myopic that the, the gospel didn't come just so you can go to heaven when you die. God wants to keep doing this cycle. And so he wants to use you to take that message outside your walls. He wants to renew you as a person. And to change your perspective about life and how you view the world and relationships and all those kind of things. And he wants to put you in context of people who still live as sons of disobedience. Who still live blinded by an enemy. And he wants you to offer them hope and healing and help. So it doesn't just stay in the walls of the church. It pushes out into our city. And so we exist to glorify God by growing together as a caring community that cares for one another, but also that makes disciples. And this is how we shine a bright light in dark places. And this is not easy work, but it's a good work. It's a work God's designed for us to do. But it's not easy. Paul tells us as he moves into chapter 6 that there's spiritual warfare. You've got to be suited up with armor for this mission. And he unpacks all the different pieces of armor, the spiritual armor God gives us to help us along our way as we're out on mission for his kingdom. And he says, when you've, when you've done all else, stand firm. Paul himself in chapter 3, I already shared this, but you can look at his sense of stewardship. He says, for this reason I, Paul, this is verse 1 of chapter 3, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you. Assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me, and I've written to you briefly. And he talks about this mystery of the gospel that God gave him to take to the Gentiles. And he saw it as a stewardship. It was something entrusted to him. But he did not own. And he was going to be held accountable to his master for how he stewarded this gift. And then he tells us that we're part of that plan. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Jesus Christ our Lord in whom we, this isn't, isn't just Paul. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And so Paul, Paul has a stewardship of this message. Stewardship of this mission. And he was intentional about it. He saw that this was a message for other people. And even if he suffered, which he did, it's for the benefit of those who heard and believed. Which made it worth it. And this wasn't simply so they could be saved and go to heaven. That's a part of it. But their salvation would increase God's praise. More 
children adopted into the family that would gather on that last day to say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so Paul's mission was connected to God's glory being maximized by the praise of those who would be there on that day. As he adopted these children into his family and continue adding blocks to this temple he's building. Just happened to see my uh, live-ins over here. They just built a tiny house, moved out to Portland. Uh, tiny houses are pretty popular these days, so I hear. Um, God's not into tiny houses. He wants a massive temple. A, a temple big enough to contain His glory. And every person who comes into the doors of the church is one block building that temple. And, and He leaves us here to carry that message forward and to see new sons and daughters brought to faith. And, and we see in verse 10 of chapter 3 that this is how God puts His wisdom on display. Pick up in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, Though I'm the least of all saints, God's grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now listen to this, verse 10. So that through the church, okay, that's our gathering. That's God's people gathered, built up like a temple. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, put on display to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, so God is, is building a temple that he invites all creation, principalities and powers, angelic beings to look on and to display his wisdom. It's a, it's a cosmic scene. And God's inviting people to look down on God's church and, and see what he's done through his son Jesus. And, and, and the way he's glorified in that is when we're growing together in Christ, mature, and we're caring for one another in community, and we're on mission making disciples. This is how we make a cosmic fuss about Jesus. And this is what gets God excited. This is what God is about. He's about his glory and he's about people seeing his son as precious. And so we want to be people who are on mission. Now let me, let me say real quickly, this is kind of a pastoral aside, don't overthink discipleship. Many people get paralyzed when they think of going out making disciples, or you might call it evangelism. I would just encourage you, don't overthink it. If, if I were to give you some counsel, this is what I'd say. Um, people who know me would say, I'm an evangelist. I don't think I'm an evangelist. I really don't. Um, I don't. By God's grace, I see people come to faith, but I don't think I have this gift of evangelism. I'll tell you what I do, and I hope it encourages you, because I, I think a lot of people overthink it. But just live the life God calls you to live. 
involve other people in your life. If you're doing a home project, have someone come with you. If you're going on a bike ride, have someone go with you. If you're going out to shoot a bow and arrow, have someone come with you. But intentionally invest into their lives when you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And just be a friend. Just be a friend to sinners. Don't try to win them over. Just love them. If you deeply love them, if you pay attention to the things God calls you to, and you seek to live a life that models what God calls us to do, they're going to see that in your life. And when their life falls apart and they don't have the answers, if you love them as a friend and they know you love them, they, they will ask you why you do things differently. And it just opens the door wide. And you don't have to live in low-grade guilt that you're not you know, handing them a track and getting them to pray a prayer. Just, just be there for them and love them genuinely. That's what Christ did for us. Help them, but be intentional. Be with them. Invite them into your life. Help them understand why you do what you do. Don't be afraid to articulate why you believe what you believe and why you live the way you live. They're listening even at times you might not think they are. And if you do that, just let God do the rest. If, if you have a willingness, God will use you. I just encourage you to be intentional about that, to, to get to know your neighbors. Just take something over. It might be awkward if you've lived by them for 10 years and you've never met them. That, that would be awkward. Um, but it can be done. There's always ways to do that. Um, think of ways to, to get involved in people's lives. Okay, I'm going to wrap up here in just a minute. But I, I wanted to share a picture I believe the Lord gave it to me. We were at a regional assembly of elders with our family of churches, and uh, my pastors have heard it. But um, it's this picture God gave me. I call it a divine download. It's one of these things that I'm not smart enough to think it up, and it comes in like a couple seconds, but it's really detailed and pictured. Um, but I got this picture of this castle. It was Call it the Castle of Humanity. And it was a dark place. It was dark and cold and wet. No one was out in the light. Everybody, everyone was in the shadows. And the shutters were closed. The, the drawbridge was closed. And all of humanity was there. And, and it's as if we all had wounds. Open sores. And shame. And we were hiding. And Jesus Christ the King came over the horizon. And there was, there was fear that struck into the heart of humanity. Because they knew they were accountable. And they knew they were diseased and, and dying. But as he got closer to the drawbridge, they realized he was not wearing a coat of arms. He was in a white robe. He was riding on a donkey. Humanity let their guard down and they opened the door and they let him in. And he began to heal their wounds. He had a rag in his hand and it was bloody. And at first I thought it was our blood, but I realized he was washing us with his blood. 
He was bringing healing to us. He was teaching us wisdom when we had lived in foolishness. He was bringing light to our darkness and the shutters were open. And he got really fatigued and he went down in this dark, dark cave. And he was gone for three days. And he came out in glorious splendor. And he was, in, he was robed for battle. And he came to us and he asked us to ride out with him. And he said, I've got a suit of armor for you. And he suited us up in his armor, this Ephesians 6 armor. And he called us to ride out. He healed us and he, he, he restored us and he invited us onto his team. And he, we charged out of this castle and we were headed to another castle and he, he told us that we were going to war. And he gave some promises. He said that the, no weapon formed against you can prosper. And greater is he that's within you than he that's within the world. And he promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And what I realized on this ride is that, that gates don't come to us. We were going to the gates of hell. And he had an army that was going to set captives free, that was going to tear down the door where the enemy had got captives and had blinded them and was causing them to live in, in dark places, and, and he was calling us to ride out. And like Paul, there's pain, there's suffering, there's loss, there's casualty. That's why we need the armor. We've got a shield because there's going to be fiery darts that the enemy fires at us. But we've got the word of God and, and, and the spirit as a sword. It's what we proclaim. And we have prayer to call in air support from on high. And he said that we would be battle weary. But, but here's how the story ended. That there would come a day where the war would be over. And, and I got this little picture in my mind of him leading us on this peaceful journey to his castle, Mount Zion. This majestic kingdom. And the gates open. And there's a great cloud of witnesses that were cheering us on when we came in. And he was leading us in triumphal procession. And, and there were flowers being thrown. And, and Hosanna being sung. All kinds of, of voices raised celebrating the last day. And, and that's our end. That's, that's where God's taking us. But now, we're on a mission. And we will get beat up. We will get bruised. We may even lose our lives. Some of us. But it's to the praise of His glorious grace. And so as a church, we want to stand on our in-body test and see that we're healthy. We want to get to the end of our days and know that God is glorified. And so we want to be a people who exist to glorify God by growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple makers.